0: Father, we come to you now believing what we have just sung, that there is power and life and grace in every promise of your word. Father, we do not need to look anywhere else for spiritual help, for growth, for maturity than the perfect scriptures that you have given to us in the fullness of time focusing on your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning that you would enliven our minds and our hearts. Pray that you would help us to hear well what you would say to us. Father, for you still speak through your word as your spirit makes it alive in our minds and our hearts. And so we pray that you would send him even now to enliven us and to prepare us to receive your truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You have a copy of God's Word. I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16 this morning. Luke chapter 16. Today, if you were to meet Beverly Chow Barris, she would probably seem like an ordinary person. Anybody else that you would meet today or in your life? she married. She has three children living in Southern California. But unlike most of us here, she grew up in a home that had a family idol. I don't just mean something that the family cherished. I mean an actual idol, a physical statue that sat in the corner of the room, something you could see, something you could touch, She says, you should never touch it. That was not what it was there for. Instead, it should be prayed to. It should be revered, even worshipped. And often when we talk about idolatry, we think in those terms. We think of physical statues, something tangible that people would worship, talk to, pray to. But when we get to Luke chapter 16, Jesus talks about idolatry in other terms. In verse 13, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And In this context, when we think about serving, we're talking about worship. Money can be served, not just God. Money can be worshipped, not just God. Money can be an idol. And while money is something, at least at this point in human history, physical and tangible, it's not so much the actual physical money that is worshipped, it's what money can do that is worshipped and served. But the same can be said for lots of things. We can make many things an idol. We can make a sense of security and safety an idol. Power or control, political identity, a relationship, even Sexual intimacy can become a kind of idol in our lives. In Luke 16, money is in view, but idolatry can be seen in just about anything. And so the question we have to ask is, do we have idols in our life? Maybe not something physical that we would bow down to, but something that takes a place of priority in our lives above even God Himself. In this context of Luke 16, the Pharisees heard Jesus teaching about money. He heard, they heard Jesus say, you cannot worship God in money. But we're told in verse 14 that they ridiculed Jesus. They scoffed at him. And Luke says, it's because they themselves were lovers of money. Now, Jesus knew that. He knew that they were scoffing. He knew that they were ridiculing him. And he could have just walked away from them at that point and said, well, they heard the truth. They have rejected it. That's on them. But instead, he does the opposite. With great urgency, Jesus went on the offensive, digging into the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, trying to get them to understand the hardness of their hearts, the idols that were there, that they might repent and be saved. Specifically, Jesus tried to show that though they claimed to worship the one true and living God, they actually worshiped themselves and their wealth and the status that that gave them as their God. They were, in fact, idolaters. So in verse 15, he says, you are those who justify themselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then Jesus goes all proceeds to to tell them a story that we're going to consider this morning. The story is meant to lay bare the sinfulness of their hearts, even the idols that they worshiped. And so as we begin to hear the story that Jesus tells, we have to prepare ourselves and we have to ask ourselves: will we hear Jesus in the same way this morning? Will we listen, ready to have the idols of our heart exposed? And Respond with repentance and faith and worship God alone. So with that in mind, let's stand and let's listen to Jesus. Luke chapter 16 beginning at verse 19. He says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in his like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and then may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. If you've been in church for a while, this passage may be a familiar one, but we need to stop and take note of its uniqueness before we begin to unpack it. Unlike every other place in the last two chapters, Luke does not introduce this passage by saying Jesus taught a parable. Moreover, we've seen Jesus tell parables and they're always anonymous. We hear about a shepherd, a woman, a father, but here a man has a name. The story is also unique in that Jesus describes not just the coming judgment or a divine banquet, but the afterlife itself. Now some have taken that to mean this isn't a parable, but something that really happened, a true story that Jesus is recounting for us. That may or may not be true, but even if it is true... We must see that Jesus is retelling that story, these events, in a parabolic fashion, that is parable-like fashion, using vivid imagery to convey spiritual realities. For example, we know from the Bible that death is a separation of the soul from the body. And in that intermediate state, the time between death and eternity, when we are either in paradise or torment, we will not have a physical form we will exist as spirits. We're not, despite what some people may have taught you, that's not a good thing. That's not what we were designed for. We were designed for physicality, and this is part of what makes the resurrection such a hopeful thing, that we will be as we are meant to be, physical beings. And so here Jesus, nevertheless, is describing these events in very real physical terms. The rich man has a tongue, and, exists where, and there exists a physical barrier between paradise and torment. But that doesn't mean that we should take what he says as mere metaphor or think of it with less seriousness. Just the opposite. If the symbolism is so striking, how much more must the reality be both good and terrible? Again, we shouldn't press the details too hard. Instead, we should remember the context here. Jesus is seeking to call out the Pharisees for the hypocrisy of their worship. He wants to see them repent of the idols of their heart. And so as we hear his words this morning, we see important truths that should also make us reflect on our own lives, reflect on our own hearts, consider our own ways. And in doing so, we see that we must first worship God with clear priority. Worship God with clear priority. Now, to understand that, we need to make some observations about the people in this narrative. Consider first the description of the rich man. This man's life is marked by self-indulgence. In his time, purple was very expensive and often worn by wealthy kings. This man wears it all the time, loud and proud, wanting everybody to know, I can afford this. I saw that uh, just uh, one of these little... uh, Quirks of history comments, and there was uh, a uh, a man from uh, somewhere in the Middle East, I believe, and he was visiting Britain, and he was looking at these uh, at, at these Bentleys or Rolls Royce or this just fantastically expensive car of the time. And apparently, the guy in the showroom thought um, you probably can't afford this, and tried to say this pro- this car is probably not for you. And out of spite, the man bought six, and attached a. Uh, 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 things on the front so that they would actually clean the streets of the town in which he lived. So he bought a Rolls Royce, a fleet of them, small fleet anyway, to be the garbage collectors of town. That's the kind of flaunting of wealth that we're talking about here. Jesus also, I think, slips in a little bit of humor. He talks about the fine linen. This is actually a word for one's undergarments. The kind of long nightshirt that that we would recognize it as that would be worn under someone's made robes. And I think Jesus' point here is to say, you want to know how, how rich this man was? Even his underwear was bougie. Moreover, Jesus makes the point of mentioning that his home doesn't have a door, it has a gate. This is an impressive home set up like, uh, like a palace of sorts. And notice how he eats. Jesus says that he feasted sumptuously every day. And I say, well, of course, rich people eat well. But as D.A. Carson points out, you must remember the Jewish context. To eat sumptuously every day meant hard work every day. Now, you know, this man is not lifting a finger to prepare his meals, which means his servants are laboring day and night for food, even on the Sabbath. He has no concern for God to, to celebrate, to remember the Sabbath day, to rest and to let his servants do the same, though it's prescribed by God. This rich man's lack of concern for anyone but himself is also seen in his treatment of the poor man, Lazarus. Notice in verse 20, it says that the gate of the rich man was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Lazarus' name is somewhat ironic to us at first because it means God has helped. Where is the help from God? It appears to be absent here. This poor man is so weak and so sick, perhaps from malnourishment, that he cannot even walk around to beg. Instead, he was laid at the gate of the rich man by the people of the town. Now, why would they lay him here? Why would they lay them at this gate of this rich man's house? Well, remember, this is before any kind of insurance, before, kind of, before any kind of socialized health care. In this society, the rich had an obligation, a social obligation, to provide for those that were poor. Sadly, though, the rich man never seems to take notice of him. For while Lazarus longs to get even the scraps of the leftovers from the rich man's table, those are reserved only for the dogs. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because dogs in this context are not the cute and cuddly, the man's best friend kind that you may have around your house. These are undomesticated street dogs, which act more like guard dogs and are only around because there was food for them. And yet these dogs unlike the rich man, show some measure of kindness towards Lazarus by giving him a little bit of relief by licking his sores. The dog had more compassion on Lazarus than the rich man did. So, So as we consider this scenario and we understand the need for us to worship God with clear priority, we need to see two simple truths. Number one, as we seek to worship God with clear priority, worship guides our everyday choices. Worship guides our everyday choices. Remember, Jesus has in mind those that were lovers of money rather than lovers of God. And part of the reason this man loved his money is because he loved himself. Now, loving yourself in one sense is not bad. Um, You probably got up and fed yourself some food. You probably got up and bathed yourself. If not, please stay on the other side of the room. But but there is self-care involved, right? We, 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 don't, we don't hate ourselves and our bodies, but there can also be a kind of inordinate self-love that destroys the kind of God-centered priorities that should be present in our lives. What you worship determines how you live each and every day, and it determines the kind of choices that you make. Think of the man in this story who thought so much of himself he would rather feed mangy wild dogs to guard him and his stuff Than help another human being in need. The rich man's deficiency, not loving his neighbor as himself, came about why? Because he wasn't first loving God. He worshipped himself and his money and he made choices that preserved his own indulgence, turning a blind eye to God or anyone else. Likewise, even today, just on a very simple level, John makes very clear, and Pastor Jason is going to preach on this as he continues working through the letter of 1 John. We cannot claim to love God if we do not also love those around us. The two stand together, just as Jesus said in his teaching on the two greatest commandments. Therefore, the only way to right living is via right worship. If you don't Write anything else down, that's worth writing down this morning. The way to right living comes by right worship. If we're truly loving God, if we're truly worshiping God as we should, then sacrificing for the sake of others will, will be quite normal to us. That might mean parting with our wealth, as in this passage. It might mean other things too. It might be thinking more about other people when we gather together on Sunday mornings. It might be lending out that second or third car that you're not using to someone who really does, knowing that you may not get that car back, at least not back in good condition. It might be serving your spouse rather than expecting your spouse to serve you. The sin of the rich man here is obvious, but let's consider the virtues of Lazarus as well. At this point, we've not explored the story fully, but we know that this poor man ends up eventually in paradise. He worships God rather than things. And he does so by faith. See how do you know that? Well, notice Lazarus is associated with Abraham, the father of faith we're told. The model of faith in the Bible. Specifically though, faith in God's promises. Faith is not just this generic thing out there. Well, I'm a person of faith. That's nice. What do you, what do you believe? What do you have your faith in? That's what really matters. And here we see Here we see through the association of Abraham who believed in God's promises that therefore Lazarus also believed in God's promises. He understood that faith is covenant-based. The salvation that Lazarus received came in the context of a covenant relationship with God by trusting in his covenant promises. Lazarus worshiped God and think about where that worship led him in his life. Now you may say, well, it led him to poverty. I don't want to be impoverished. Well, but, but think more broadly about that. Do we see Lazarus complaining about his poverty or illness? Do we see bitterness in his heart? No, we don't see any of those things. In fact, it's frankly a great contrast to many of us in our life who complain and get bitter about far less severe things than the kind of life that Lazarus could have been complaining about or bitter about. We forget The great mercy and blessings that God has poured out on our lives daily. Who or what you worship will guide the everyday choices that you make. So if you are unhappy with your life and the decisions that you have made recently, then change who or what you worship. If you're too blind to see your sin and your moral failures, then let the example of these two men shock you back to reality. The solution is worshiping God. Your worship guides your everyday choices, but notice also that worship produces everlasting results. Worship produces everlasting results. In verse 22, Jesus says, The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Just as Lazarus was once carried by men to the rich man's door, so now the angels carry him to the side of Abraham. If you have an older translation, it may have the phrase Abraham's bosom, meaning his, his heart and his chest. The point is the same, though. It's an image of intimacy, and it comes from a culture where we didn't have tables and chairs. People sound on the ground a lot. They, 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 would, they, would sit, they would sit around things like, like a fire or like a meal. And there was a lot of even lounging around on people. It was a, it was a sign of affection and acceptance. If you and I uh, were, well, if, if, if you're a guy, right? So if Eric and I were, were, out to, were, were at a gathering and we're talking with some people and he was tired and he decided to, to lay his head on my shoulder, we would think, whoa, what's going on today? But in this context, no, it, it, showed, it showed friendship. It showed familiarity. It showed, showed in the best sense, male love. And so here you have this close relationship with Abraham. He once was excluded even from friendship and scraps, but now he is feasting with the father of faith himself. Now it's made clear Jesus has indeed helped him. God has helped him, just as his name says. He has helped him to have faith in his promises, and now he is in paradise forgiven for his sins. But what of the rich man? Well, there's no paradise for him, only torment. Jesus says, the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. If it's possible, the rich man looks even worse in death than he did in life. Notice what we see here. He knows who Lazarus is. So so we can't go back into the the story, into the parable, into the real account, whatever it was, and say, well, he never went out and about, he had his entourage, he never noticed Lazarus. He knows exactly who Lazarus is, and in his life he chose to ignore him and the needs that he knew about day in and day out. Notice here, in death, there is no sign of repentance or contrition from this man. Worse, he still thinks of Lazarus as someone who is beneath him. Abraham, have Lazarus come and give me a drink, he says. Why did he just ask Lazarus himself? Even in hell, this man is blind to reality. He thinks of himself as someone deserving the service of others. He is in pain and wants sympathy, but shows no sympathy for Lazarus. He cannot imagine giving up his sense of self-importance. When we think about what comes after death that there may be a compassionate impulse in us, a good impulse that says, well, maybe there'll be some kind of second chance. Maybe once the person is dead and they're in torment, they will come to realize the great folly of their actions, and they will repent, and they will turn to God, and God will accept them. But number one, the Bible never teaches that, just the opposite. And one thing that we must be clear about is that God is not the one sending people to hell. They are sending themselves there by their rebellion against him, by their worship of false gods, by their unrepentance. Notice also that what is clear in other parts of the Bible is certainly clear here. Those in torment, those in hell will not be repentant. They will not be sorrowful over their sins. Jesus makes this clear in Revelation 22. He says, in, in, in eternity, the unjust will be unjust still. The evildoer will be the evildoer still. Hell does not change anyone's mind about their sin or purge it from their soul. And so C.S. Lewis got it right when he said that whether you're in heaven or you're in hell, you keep becoming more and more of the same thing that you were when you pass into eternity. So those of us that have put our faith in Christ for forgiveness and life with God, we will continue to more and more be filled with the glory of God's image, remaking us more and more into glorious beings, trophies of his grace, loving in fellowship with him and with one another. And for those who have rejected God's love, who have rejected the clear evidence there's a creator who deserves to be worshipped through creation itself, perhaps having heard the gospel and said, I don't need Jesus. They will not regret those decisions. In fact, they will be hardened. And they will become more even twisted and evil as they continue eternal existence in bitterness despite the just judgment that they are receiving. Our faith will lead to change lives in this life, but that is not the end. There is an eternity before us. There is a heaven to be gained. There is a hell to be feared. Our life now now, pales in comparison to eternity. That's why D.A. Carson says, we must weigh everything in light of eternity or else the things you cherish now may be the idols that condemn you. Nevertheless, hell is not inevitable. Lazarus experienced the joy of paradise after death just so today. In fact, God offers even more today because Christ has come. He has accomplished the work. And so now, with great clarity, the gospel is proclaimed. Forgiveness in life as part of a new creation if we look to Christ in faith and repentance. Therefore, understanding everything that has come before, let us also understand, brothers and sisters... That we have a calling, a necessary calling, to share Christ with confident boldness. Share Christ with confident boldness. For, for several years, that they're, I think they're a little out of fashion now it seems, but for several years, every store that you can imagine. Bookstores like Barnes & Noble to everyday stores like Walmart and Kroger in their book section, they would have a, a, a small grouping of books written by people who claim to have some kind of experience after death. They went to heaven, they went to hell, their kids went there, and now they came back and they have something to tell us about the afterlife. And for some people who are believers in Christ, they thought those stories were good and helpful. I, I'm not so sure about that. And I, and I think if we understand the theology that Jesus teaches here in this passage, all of us would say, I'm not so sure those things are helpful. Why? Well, first of all, the authenticity of those recount, recountings are dubious at best. In fact, one author has in recent years admitted that his work was an entire fabrication. Some may believe that they have had some kind of experience. I'm more likely to, I'm more inclined to believe that uh, that was simply. Their thoughts firing in their brain as their body struggled to, to, to deal with lack of life as we know it. The Bible is clear that once you pass from death to life, there is no going back until the resurrection. Secondly, even if those stories are true, they're likely completely useless because of what Jesus says in this passage. Think about the story that he is saying here. Think about what he makes clear. He makes super clear that it is only faith in God's promises that brings salvation. This is why we must proclaim boldly. Faith in God's promises brings salvation. Not faith in a story about heaven Or what one kid claims to have seen. No, it is the promises of God. those promises that we sang about right before this sermon started that give us the assurance that heaven and hell are real and that a choice must be made and that God is willing to bring us into fellowship with himself. Moreover, look at verse 27. Jesus says, The rich man was denied having his torment ease. Now he asks for something else. He says, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send to my father's house. To send him that is Lazarus, send into my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. What does Abraham say in verse 29? They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Send Lazarus to tell my brothers, you've got to warn them about this place. They do not want to be here. They will listen to Lazarus. And Abraham says, no, no, they have all they need. They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the word of God. They have the Scriptures. They have God's promises. That is enough. That's all they need. Everything that God has said on issues like the threat of eternal uh, eternal punishment, the promise of eternal life, the nature of divine forgiveness and reconciliation, God has already spoken about in His Word. Just listen and believe. And when can they hear that? Every week. Because every Sabbath day in, in Jesus' day, the Scriptures were read in the synagogues. Abraham is saying that just like this rich man, so also... The brothers should make God the priority in their life. They should remember His creation and redemption of the people of Israel through the exodus, through His fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. They should listen to His promises and warnings and believe. And this is why, even today, we should proclaim Christ with confidence. It is not in our ability. It is not in our ministry prowess. It's not in our ability to be amazing extroverts and engage with all kinds of people. That's not what produces faith. God's Word produces faith. Most of us here are well familiar with Romans 10:17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of Christ. And we see this all throughout the Bible. If we will simply declare God's Word and preach His promises, specifically now in the Gospel, God will open blind eyes and save His people. Furthermore, we must understand that as we seek to boldly proclaim those promises, hard hearts are not persuaded by signs. Hard hearts are not persuaded by signs. The rich man has asked Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers, and his request was denied. Abraham says that the Scriptures are enough. Now notice, the rich man tries to correct Abraham's theology. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The rich man says, my brothers just need some kind of sign, some kind of proof that God is real, the promises are true, so, so, so send someone back from the dead, send, send Lazarus back. Abraham says, no, if they're not going to listen to God's word, they're not going to be convinced by a sign, not even a sign like Lazarus rising from the dead. Now, now let's just pause, let's think about this for a minute. Because whether or not this is true or not, we have another story in the Bible about a guy named Lazarus that was true. Historical narrative from John 11. You remember what happens there? Jesus has these two friends, these two disciples named Mary and Martha. They are sisters, and they have a brother named Lazarus. And we know that Jesus is close to them. He loves them. That Lazarus gets sick and dies. And not just a kind of princess bride, mostly dead. We're, We're talking really dead okay? He is buried in the ground for four days in the Middle Eastern heat. His body has started to decay. Gases are being emitted emitted from his body, and he says, I want you to open the tomb. And his sister says, but Lord, he stinks. You say, did she really say that? Yeah, go look it up. John 11 verse 39. The old King James is my favorite, but Lord, he stinketh. Uh, we don't want to open that tomb, Jesus. I know you loved him. You may want to see him again, but we don't want to open that tomb. And he says, yeah, we, we want to open that tomb. Why? Because they open the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And it's not some zombie time. It, it is Lazarus, restored to health, coming out in the bandages. And Jesus has to say, I, I, unbind him and, and set him free. He has given life back to Lazarus. And and the family are rejoicing. The disciples are amazed. But what about the religious leaders? In the very next verse, John tells us they are seeking how to kill him. Here is a great sign. Someone, even someone named Lazarus, is brought back from the dead. But they don't believe. The hard hearts are not convinced. They aren't changed by signs. Miracles do not produce faith. The word produces faith. But there's more. Think about the weight of Abraham's words here, the tragedy of these words. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will, be they, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There is another who rose from the dead. Not like Lazarus. I tend not to say raz- Lazarus was resurrected because that implies that he would not die again. But he did die again, just like all of us. Are going to die one day. But there is another person that Luke tells us about. That the whole Bible tells us about. His name was Jesus. And back in chapter 9, we're told that Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. That was Luke's way of telling us Jesus had decided now was the time for him to go to the cross. And he would begin making his way there. Because at the cross, he would experience God's wrath for our sins and in spotless righteousness be treated as the most wicked person who ever lived so that we might be declared forgiven by God. Jesus died at the hands of hard-hearted religious leaders, but God brought him back from the dead. On the third day, he rose victorious from the grave. He appeared to hundreds of people in different settings, showing irrefutably he is really alive. He even took the time to cook breakfast on the beach for his disciples and eat with them that they might see. He was flesh and blood, not merely a ghost. But do the religious leaders who killed him, who did not believe God's promises or his teaching or the word that he proclaimed, did they trust him and believe him and see him because he rose from the dead? No, they did not. In fact, they quickly began trying to pay off those who saw him alive, instructing them instead to say that someone stole the body instead. They were not convinced, even though a man was raised from the dead. As we consider these things, how should we respond to this morning? First, we dare not ignore God's word. We dare not ignore God's word. God has revealed himself through the events of redemptive history, supremely through his son, and all this has been captured in the revelation of God's word. Even more than the Jews of Jesus' day, we have the gospels, the apostolic letters, and more. This is where we look to know God and to be saved by him. If we ignore that, we have nothing left. We have nothing left. Not only should we dare not ignore God's word, we dare not keep it to ourselves. We dare not keep it to ourselves. We might be tempted to walk away from this passage and think, okay, I got it. I just need to help the poor. Now, you've missed the point. Now, if you've been stingy and greedy and hoarded your wealth, fine. Then, yes, you should go out and help the the, the poor. But that's not the only thing that we should walk away from here. And that's not the only thing that we should do. I I would encourage you to to find out, uh, to search out the little book called, Is There Anybody Out There? by Mez McConnell. Uh, Mez is a church planter in one of the poorest areas of Scotland. That book is his biography. And among other things, Mez Mez talks about how he grew up poor and abused and was even homeless for a while. He, He was someone who could use a wealthy benefactor in his life growing up. But here's what he'll also say. True mercy ministry is sharing the gospel of Christ and teaching people who believe how to live as disciples of Christ. there's a lot more we can do for people, but we can't do less than that if we're seeking to show them mercy. And yet sometimes we are ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We doubt its power. And so we don't share it. We, we, We don't tell people. We think like the Greeks, it is foolish to talk openly and publicly about a man that died and came back to life, never to die again, who is now seated at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning over all things. And so when it comes to getting people saved, when it comes to building the church, we invest in all kinds of other things. We feel like we need some razzle-dazzle testimony, or we need to get someone to someone who has a razzle-dazzle testimony. We need to point out some miracle or engage in some method to see people saved. But over and over again, the constant refrain throughout the entirety of the Bible can be summed up in Paul's words from Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's where our confidence lies, in the word of God, in the good news of Christ, not in anything that we do related to that. So do you want to show mercy to someone this morning? Do you want to meet their needs? Start by sharing Christ with them. There's a lot, again, that you can do after, but not less. Preach the gospel so that men and women everywhere might believe, brothers and sisters. Remember Beverly Barris that we talked about at the beginning? Someone who grew up with a family idol? She doesn't have an idol in her house anymore because when she was a young girl, her parents turned from idols to serve the living God. Listen to how she describes this life-changing event. She says, there's a memory seared into my mind From when I was 12 years old, I was watching from the back door of our home as my father brought out an axe. Laying prostrate on the ground was a three foot tall, intricately designed statue of Buddha carved from wood. The axe went flying through the air over my father's shoulder, landing with a loud thwack. The first stroke severed the statue's head. Another thwack. Then another, pieces of redwood went flying all over the yard. Finally, all that was left were indiscernible remnants of what was once our family idol. The scene also gave me a lasting impression that life for my dad and our family would never be the same. Before my parents were born again by the saving grace of God, we had certain household rules regarding the idol. You don't play with the idol. Don't pat it like a pet. Don't move it like a toy. Don't touch it, Period. My parents explained that the Buddha would prosper us and bring us good fortune as it watched over us. In return for the idol's provision and care, we were to pay it respect and show reverence in its presence. We were to worship it. As I watched the back door, my father crushed this idol. One thing became crystal clear. The reality of the gospel demands the killing of one's idols. In this passage, Jesus is zeroing in on the Pharisees' idols of wealth and reputation, showing them the good news of God's willingness to forgive if they repent. This morning, as we hear that message, we must ask ourselves the same questions that He wanted them to ask of themselves. What are our idols this morning? What in our life gets in the way of us worshiping God the way that He deserves Those questions are not hard to answer because if we are honest comparing the everyday choices we make against the teachings of the scripture, it will be clear the direction that we're going and what those idols are. But will we answer those questions and see that as God's awakening grace or will we continue to make excuses for the idols in our life? Let us therefore carefully examine our hearts and take out the acts of faith and Repentance so that we may hack apart the idols in our life that threaten to derail us from God's call. That He might truly receive the worship and the glory He deserves from us. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed thankful for Your Word We're thankful for its life-giving power. We're thankful that you send your spirit to open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Father, as we think about these Pharisees who were so blinded to their idols, their love of money rather than their love of you, and the striking picture that Jesus provides of that through the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Father, we pray that we would not, again, we would not simply think this is about money. It might be in our lives, but it's about more than that. It's about holding on to something and making it so precious, so valuable that we do not worship you the way that you deserve to be worshipped. So Father, this morning we pray that you would free us from those things. We pray for those that are here and they have some idol that is keeping them from trusting Christ for the forgiveness of their sins to be reconciled to you that you might be their God and they your people. We pray that you would free them from that this morning. That you would open their eyes to see the glory of your Son as the Savior of the world, and trust Him. We pray for those of us that have long worshipped Your Son, that have long trusted in Him as our Savior, and yet, Father, we still trust other things as well. Maybe even intangible things, but we cling to them because we feel like we need them. Father, help us to let go of those things. In light of all the mercy that You provide, all of the grace that You give, all that You are for Your people, Father, if you indeed are our shepherd, then we lack nothing. You will always provide for what we need. Father, help us to trust in you. Help us to leave our idols in the dust. Help us to hack them apart through faith and repentance in you and your precious promises. Help us not to be like the hard-hearted Pharisees. Help us not to be those who thought, if if, if we just see the right sign, Father, you have given us the perfect sign of your son coming back from the dead. Do not leave us with hard hearts, but help us put our faith in him. As we continue in a time of silent prayer and reflection, ask the Lord to reveal the idols in your heart and ask him for the grace to see them removed.